there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. Well, hey there, it's Liz Rohr from Real World NP, and you're watching NP Practice Made Simple, the weekly videos to help save you time, frustration, and help you learn faster so you can take the best care of your patients. So in this week's video, it is an interview with my personal lawyer, Ernice Williams, and we had such an amazing conversation. So we gathered the questions from the Real World NP community of questions that you'd like to ask an oy- a lawyer, and uh, really kind of went through piece by piece, and we got to a lot, a lot of things. but. A lot of big questions that people have. Should I have my own malpractice insurance? What are the most common reasons to be sued? Um, How to document things appropriately? And like a whole bunch of other like big, big questions that people really worry about um, as nurse practitioners, newer and experienced. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of uh, NP Practice Made Simple. And you can find your nurse lawyer uh, on Instagram at your nurse lawyer. And uh, if you haven't signed up for the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, be sure to do so at uh, realworldnp.com slash guide. You'll get these videos sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and bonus content that I really just don't share anywhere else, including the opportunity to to submit your questions for future upcoming interviews. Without further ado, though, I'm going to share my interview with Ernice. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So do you want to introduce you? Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Ernice. Um, I am a nurse and a lawyer. I've been a nurse for 12 years and an attorney for six years. And I work with healthcare providers and healthcare entrepreneurs who have their own practices or their own businesses to ensure that they understand their risk and liabilities. I do some community education as well. Um, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, and I'm a current New Yorker and travel nurse currently uh, during the COVID crisis. That's so cool. That is so cool. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to answer all of these questions. Um, We're going to, so we, I asked the real world NP community what their legal questions were, and we broke it down into the categories of the kind of general, most common things. Um, And do you have any disclaimers you want to, you want to? Yes, I will (laughs) add that. (laughs) None of the advice that I give here, medical or legal, (laughs) um, qualifies as attorney-client privilege or establishes any relationship of attorney-client. It is general advice that I would give in any type of public setting. Um, And if there are any specific questions or scenarios, I would definitely tell you to consult with an attorney in your area. Totally. And you have such great resources to direct people to. So um, absolutely. So I think the we broke down kind of like the major questions that people had. So the first one is about kind of like the general topic of documentation. Like, I think that people are so worried about what to chart, what not to chart. Like, what is your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, documentation is a conversation, I think, for all nurses, nurse practitioners, even some providers who um, are just unsure about what is enough and what is acceptable. 
I always lead with, if you had to take this into court, you want to be able to back yourself up. Because when someone sues a provider or an organization, the only thing you have is your chart. I think sometimes people think they will have their memory, but it could be years, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, depending on what the situation is. And so the only thing that you will have is what's in that chart. And you want to be able to cover yourself with the information that's in the chart, because that's all you're going to be able to bring into court. Mm. Um, there are some instances where there will be some external information that could potentially be provided. But in healthcare cases, all we have is the documentation of the conversations that we have with our patients, the treatments that we provided, um, their refusals, or their, if they agreed to go forward with that. All of those decisions need to be in the chart. Um, I know as new providers, they struggle with time management because you're trying to see a lot of patients, the expectations on you are extremely high, even if you have three, six months, nine months worth of training, the expectations are high and the pressure is there. And so you may not have all of the time to document right there on the spot, but I think there are some tools and resources that are out there depending on what EMR system you use to kind of pre-chart some items, to um, do some shortcuts, to do some short notes and to find, figure out ways to help you centralize some of the very, very important and critical information, and then maybe kind of go back and review and edit later. Um, I think that's the key thing. Um, I think when there are situations where you are asking or advising your patient to do something that they're not agreeing to, those are the things you want to put in the chart as well. So if you're telling the patient they need to see a specialist and they're saying, I'm not going to see a specialist, I don't think that is important, those exact words should probably go in the chart. Mm, that happens all the time. <laughs> and it will be like, okay, fine, whatever, we'll talk about it later. Um, and adding that as well, saying, patient said, quote, I'm not going to see a specialist. And then I under, you know, I understood what they said. I validated that that was an okay option for now and that we would follow back up on it later, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now that you're even allowing that to pass and just say like, fine, we're just leave it at that, that you're saying, mm -hmm. okay, I want to give the patient autonomy, but I also want to reiterate to them the importance of going to do whatever I'm advising them to do. Yeah. Um, so that is a type of documentation I think that becomes critical when patients say, oh, there's a delayed diagnosis um, mm -hmm. or, you know, I didn't know that I had this disease. No one ever told me that. And that comes up, like someone will say they don't know they have diabetes, but they're taking medication for their diabetes. And I'm like, you know, you picked up the medication. Someone had to have told you along the way. Yes. But if there's no edu information in the chart that said, I educated the patient or I referred the patient to speak with the diabetes specialist or um, with someone on the team to have a specific conversation about this, then that's where providers get caught up. Basically, there's no actual documentation on what steps they took to ensure that the patient knew, understood, verbalized understanding, um, and then were in, they were in a position to take the next steps. Um, so I think sometimes where providers struggle as well is you will advise a patient to do something and not uh, ensure that they're able to do it, mm. right? So if you tell someone, I need you to go see the specialist, and they say, okay, they take the referral, but they never go. And then they come back and you say, hey, you didn't go to the, to the specialist. Here's another referral. No one ever asked them why they didn't go. Mm -hmm. It could be because the copay is $50. It could be because it's outside of where an area that they can get to easily. It could be that the hours are limited or that they couldn't get an appointment. Those oh, wow. conversations 
have to be documented and those questions need to be asked. Um, there are a lot of assumptions that go into having these conversations with patients where, oh, patient is just not compliant. Never say the patient's not compliant in the chart. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you, you do want to speak to the reasons. Like a patient is undomiciled. So picking up medication may not be something that is value, you know, that they can do at the time. Like sending sending medication to a specific pharmacy may be difficult for them because if they're moving from shelter to shelter, they may not have access to that pharmacy at, like in another month or in another few weeks, or they may not have access to money in another few months or another few weeks, even if you give them a 60 or a 90 day supply. Mm. Right. And so, and so providers are liable in those situations, not necessarily liable or not, but if it's not documented and, yeah. and a, something happens to that patient, you could be brought to court in a case where a family member may say, well, they didn't take care of my, my family uh, because they were, they didn't take care of my family member because of X, Y, and Z. You want to be able to say, I offered the patient a 90 day supply, let them know that if they ran out and weren't able to go to the pharmacy to come back and you would give them another one. Right. So you want to have those very specific conversations documented. I think when I read a lot of charts, there's a lot of general information. Yes you know, putting in the H&P is important, but the H&P is in a, a whole bunch of other places. So yes, that is, of course, an easy um, information that you can add to the chart. But some of the specifics of the conversations that you're having with the patient have to be there to show that there is a progression um, in, in the care that you're providing. You don't want a patient to continue to come to see you week after week, month after month, and nothing is getting better. And there's no information in the chart as to why, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I, in a, job that I worked before, we had a patient who was a diabetic, everything was under control. She switched insurances and they began to deny the medication she needed. Mm -hmm. The provider began to document every single time the patient came, how much work was put into trying to get that patient help. The patient ended up dying because the insurance denied their medication. And if the provider and the diabetes coordinator and all these people didn't put documents the reason why this patient no longer had access to the medications that they needed, it could have looked like we were neglectful in that situation. But they went above and beyond and ensured that they documented every phone call to the insurance company, every letter, every um, out, outreach to an organization to attempt to help this patient to get access to that, to try to change her insurance. All of those specifics were put in the chart. So when she was literally on her deathbed and the family told the provider, you know, we knew exactly why this happened. Um, and it was not the provider's fault. It was not the organization's fault. It really spoke to the, the, the struggles and the failures of the insurance company. Um, but if you work in a federally qualified healthcare center, there are times where you get audited by the federal government. And when they see those types of things, they're going to dig deep. They're going to want to know why this happened, um, especially if they're getting a bill for, uh, you know, weeks and weeks of care in an intensive care unit for someone who you're managing and who you're caring for. They want to know how did this patient go from being well-managed, never being hospitalized for five years, and then all of a sudden being in an ICU for six months, right? So- That's horrifying. (laughs) That is so enraging and horrifying. It it was one of the hardest situations. I think we all, the provider was so heartbroken. The family was heartbroken. I mean, every person involved because they really had worked so hard to get this person to that point of being well-controlled and that little simple decision to change her insurance because she thought it would be a better option literally led to her death, right? Um, And so it's tragic. There are so many tragedies that happen. And I think as providers, we make assumptions that everyone knows why. 
Mm-hmm. We make assumptions that, you know, um, even during COVID, if you're sending someone a referral for the longest, radiology centers had closed and they weren't seeing anyone. They didn't care. COVID negative, how severe, like those, that needed to be documented, right? So yeah. there have been so many delays in care this year. And if your patient had some, a disease process that needed to see a specialist or see a radiologist or get an MRI or something that could not be done, you need to speak to that because yeah. 10 years from now, COVID is going to seem like it never really happened. Like oh, as much so as it, right. it, you know, like it is a very um, intense situation now and it is all our life, our life yeah. is, revolves around. Yeah. In 10 years, it's going to be a figment of our imagination. <laughs> We're going to forget how hard we labored through that. Yeah. It's just like having a baby, like, yeah. you know, like, oh my God, that was so terrible. And then two years from now, you're like, oh my goodness, I think I can have another baby after you complain you know, <laughs> about how hard it was. So it's so true. And I think about that when I'm doing my documentation now and the like boundaries where I feel like we're pushing because people don't want to be seen in person. We're trying to keep them on a telemedicine visit because they don't want to expose themselves. And I'm just documenting like this is in the COVID pandemic patient declines, you know, um, but it makes me nervous thinking about that future thing, you know, that future backdating. I think what would be really helpful um, if we can kind of like keep with the documentation, but kind of like incorporate um, what, like the most, I think, cause I think that if I, I'm obsessed with the lived experience of the new nurse practitioner and I can already hear the panic. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit of panic too. Um, but in terms of like, so like the documentation thing, the time management thing is so hard, right? But like, I think if we work backwards, like what are the most common things that people get um, sued for? And I think that that, because obviously we want to give that maximal optimal care at all times. But if we're talking about like the frame of documentation, what do you feel like in your perception, in your experience, like the most common things are, sounds like delay in care is one, neglect is another. Like if you can kind of like lay that out, like the most common reasons that people get sued and like how to avoid them, I think that would be super helpful to tie into that documentation conversation. Um. So yeah, most Family practitioners, providers um, get sued in federal, in federally qualified healthcare centers, like those, you know, groups of people um, who treat patients on a daily basis, mostly get sued for delay in diagnosis. Most get uh, what? Get sued for delay in diagnosis. Oh, oh. Um, that is the biggest one uh, that one costs the most and goes to court. Um, so if someone is diagnosed with breast cancer, you feel a lump, they go to, you know, radiology or, you know, whatever you guys call them, <laughs> you know, to go get further care. Yeah. And you don't follow up to make sure that they follow through with the entire process. And then six months later, they went from stage one, to stage three, and now they're having a mastectomy. And now they're like, all these other things are happening. That is a lot of what usually happens. And it's usually cancer. Cancer is usually the one that causes to see the most mm. um uh i feel like there have been very few lawsuits about like the chronic illnesses right so i think some people assume that those people who have chronic illnesses may come back and sue um but i think chronic illnesses it looks so different in every single person and it's just a long process that mm. it's very rare that someone has a chronic illness necessarily um, and they come back and see because they had a chronic illness that eventually led to either an amputation or someone's death. That's really rare because we know that it's so much that goes into a chronic illness and managing a chronic illness um, that it's usually not the provider's fault. Uh, yeah. And it's very, something that's very hard to prove. Yeah. Um, the other 
I think big one that I think people see about is treatment, like how they're treated, mm. right? So like discrimination. Uh, so they discriminated against me because I was homeless or because I was mm. black, Hispanic, transgender. Like mm. those are, are big because they, people feel like they're not being treated appropriately or given the appropriate care. Yeah. And because of that, it led to whatever outcome has happened. Yeah. Um, so that's the other big one in like family practitioner. Mm-hmm. For any nurse practitioners that work in the hospital, mm-hmm. um, a lot has to do with um, prescriptions and things. I mean, I guess providers, family nurse practitioners, prescriptions as well, um, appropriate prescriptions. So not necessarily for the, the patient, but the federal government will come after people who aren't writing appropriate prescriptions. So your DEA license, you do want to protect it. Yeah. Um, of yeah. course, you want to make sure that there aren't pads laying around, that it's not easy access to print um, prescriptions illegally, like someone may have access to the office or to the documents, things like that. Um, and not necessarily people being held. I think people assume that if you get sued, that people automatically are guilty. Um, that's mm-hmm. not true. It's a process and it's a very long process. So mm-hmm. um, in an instance where someone brings a case against a provider because of something they did or didn't do, there's an in- initial investigation that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And then if there's some sus- substantial evidence that really um, can be decided by a judge, basically, um, then that's when it goes to court. But mm-hmm. people can call, you know, and make a claim and, uh, you know, call the board on you and do all those different things. But that doesn't mean it always goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the anxiety that people have is understandable because it's your life, your livelihood, your license, and you do want to do everything to protect it. But in that, they practice defensive documentation. So defensive documentation is where you are basically saying the patient didn't do this, the patient didn't do this. Like, it's very spastic and it's not showing what it is that you're doing as a provider. It's putting all the onus on the patient, mm. right? So you're saying, I told the patient to do these things and the patient didn't do any of these things. You're not really talking about the relationship and like the education, the support, the resources. You're focused more on the outcome, mm. right? And so it's like, I told the patient to do this, the patient didn't do this, and now this is what's happening. Mm. But in reality, healthcare and is a continuous conversation. So mm. if you're educating the patient today, you still may need to re-educate next month and yeah. then month after that. It's like yeah. a continual process. I yeah. think we can't just assume or count people out just because um, they're not agreeable to something. Because I am a very difficult patient. <laughs> I think all nurses are. <laughs> and it may take me two or three visits to really accept what it is that you're saying. Um, I talked about this when uh, we're, I was talking a little bit about diabetes and I had gestational diabetes. And I was like, I am not checking my blood sugar. Like, and she was like, no, you have to. I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I work. I'm busy. <laughs> she was just like, Okay. So the next time I came back, she was like, have you been checking your blood sugar? I was like, girl, I told you I was about to And you know, and so it's like, you have to not just say patient said, no, we left it at that. Just say, you know, I re-educated the patient. I made them understand how important it was. And then I followed back up on the next visit. Mm. Like that's how you document. You don't document mm. all of the negative things that are happening in the conversation, yeah. the negative relationship yeah. that the patient may have with their disease process or with you or with healthcare. But you have to document the 
what you're doing to get them mm. on the right track, even if they never get there. Mm, totally. You know, I guess, so you, I guess yeah. one of the things that I, I was thinking is that, because I've struggled with this, especially with patients, like if they don't want to do things, they have their full right to, right? Um, I guess like, I guess I'm, I'm finding myself a little bit surprised by the, um, uh, like if you're telling somebody to go get imaging or advising them to get imaging, they agree to it, but then they don't go. I guess in my mind, I've, I've always thought that if they're an adult, if they're like a consenting adult, like they have their cognition intact, that like, that is enough, but it sounds like it's not. It sounds like you kind of, I, I'm curious about that because I think that I, I, well, this could open up a can of worms, but I feel like there's a lot of uh, conversations that I have about empowering patients, having conversations with them and encouraging their own responsibility versus that like kind of like, like, what is that word? The, I don't know, patriarchal pa- patronizing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever that term is of like you telling them what to do. Um, so that's interesting. That's interesting that it's like a lot more. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what saves people. And so that's why you know, when I ask people, like, do you know how to have difficult conversations with people is because sometimes you think you're saying something Mm -hmm. and you're relaying some concept to a patient and they understand and they may just be like, okay, I hear you, I hear you. And they don't really understand. Yeah. Um, I give you an example of like recently where a patient was dying, like we know that knew the patient was dying and we're doing just ridiculous things. And that everyone was afraid to tell the family that the patient was dying. And so I, we're on a phone call with the family, the doctor, the attending, the PA, other nurses. And I finally was like, ma'am, I don't know you and I don't know this patient, but I'm telling you what the outcome is going to be if we don't stop what we're doing and take care of where she is right now. Mm-hmm. And then the daughter finally sat back and was like, okay, I hear what you're saying. Because everyone was just, skirting around the issue and assuming Mm. that she knew that her mother was going to die. And I'm like, Mm. did you tell her that her mother is going to die and that her mother is dying and that her, the state that her mother in means that this can be a very quick death that leaves no closure. Right. And so I think there is this assumption that we're saying things clearly. And sometimes you have to say things just different ways or someone has to hear someone else's voice. You want, you know, the nurse to come back and follow up or you want, you know, sometimes it's the, the medical office assistant who has a great relationship with the patient yeah. who can go in and say, you really need to listen to what the doctor is telling you. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. we can never discredit anyone's value yeah. in educating the patient. It starts mm-hmm. from the minute they walk into the building to the minute that they leave cool. um, and empowering everyone to be able to build that relationship with the patient allows the provider more room to be the provider and not yeah. to have all of these extra things, right? Because mm. the more time you spend trying to convince someone to do something, the less you're really able to actually do the work that you're there to do. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And I wonder, um, and speaking of difficult conversations, uh, we, can, we can go in any direction you want, but I think it just kind of ties really nicely into um, how to tell a patient when you've made a mistake. <laughs> that's like a general question. We don't have to go into that if you don't want to. And we can. I mean, I think that's real. Um, I've been there when like give the wrong vaccine to someone's child and they're like, Oh, you wanted this vaccine and not that one. Yeah. Um, You know, it happens. So I told, uh, I told them the community about a mistake I made recently about like, uh, uh, I guess I can say it here too. I had a woman who was pregnant who had a UTI and I just didn't order the repeat UTI. You repeat culture a week later. Cause I just was, I was, I was moving fast and I wasn't thinking it was the end of the day. It was a really long day and she like really wanted to get out, you know? And so, and then it's like having that conversation of like, 
luckily it was nothing bad happened, you know, but like that was uncomfortable. I was like, Ooh, that does not feel good. You know, but yeah, yeah. any, any thoughts you have about. Yeah. So the last hour we made a lot of mistakes. So we had a lot of these conversations. Um, and I think the first thing is to be gentle with yourself, right? Like I think we put so much pressure on ourselves as if we have to be perfect as if the patient expects us to be perfect, um, as if we're not human. And the anxiety that you feel when you make a mistake is not necessarily that the mistake was made or what the outcome may be for the patient. It's how they're going to make you feel and how you feel about yourself. And so all that energy that is like the hotness, the sweats, the like anxiety that you feel is more about like, what are they, what are they going to say or how they're going to respond? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you go in and take a deep breath and really relax and say, okay, to yourself, I made a mistake and really mm-hmm. assess like how this happened because it's never usually intentional. It's usually yeah. because we're busy, we're fat, you know, when we're moving too fast. We have too many patients. Um, someone called your name in the middle of you doing something that you meant to do and then you just went to the left instead of the right. Like it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and to explain to people like, you know, to be honest, I think for me, when I've ever, when I've made a mistake or in a situation where um, someone else has made a mistake, I had to call the patient myself. I always start with saying who I am and, you know, that how long I've been working in healthcare, why I work in healthcare, why it's important to me to take care of you appropriately. And then to admit the mistake I made and say, I'm so sincerely apologize for that. Um, And this is how we're working to make sure that never happens to any other patient. I feel like if you told me you made a mistake, I like want to cry right now because of like, yeah, it's just so beautiful to say it that way because it's like, like clearly like you are a very caring person, right? Yeah. And so like you would never want to intentionally hurt somebody. So yeah. like, I feel like as a patient receiving that, I'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I always were the one who was put on the spot. Like, can you call this patient and tell them we took the wrong blood? And I was just like, hey, we've been working to improve the clinic for, for the last two years. And we have made a lot of strides in doing so. Um, but yesterday, we took with a tube that was expired. Yeah. Yeah. It has happened. The only time that I think I exploded was we drew, like, the wrong labs on someone, like, three times. It was absolutely insane. And I literally had just had the conversation. And so then I just started screaming. I was, just, I was a manager. But I was like, how much of that? They're going to hate me. That doctor's going to kill me. Like, I was acting so crazy. Like the staff were just looking at me. And then like, I caught my boss and I was just kind of like, I can't believe they keep do this to me. <laughs> like, you know, those instances where you keep making the same mistake over and over, it's just no excuse for yeah, it. Yeah, that's just like, you got to figure out a better way. Um, and then that's where like the risk management and compliance team comes in. Cause it's like, if the same, if three or four people are making the same mistake over and over, something is missed, something is happening. Let's mm-hmm. figure out why. So I think it's easy sometimes to say, people are making this mistake um, and there's something wrong with them. But sometimes you have to look at it from a systemic level and say, okay, this mistake is happening continuously. What can we do to either fix it or put enough a red flag in place um, that, uh, you know, makes people double check or figure out why this is happening over and over. Um, And then you fix the system and then hopefully people don't make the same mistake. Yeah, totally. Um, I guess a question I have about that is like, what is your, do you have any like thoughts about like the documentation around it? It doesn't sound like that's a huge malpractice risk of like you making a mistake in terms of like the, the volume of, of lawsuits, but 
do you have any thoughts about documentation of, of mistakes? Yeah. So never go back and delete what you originally did. Totally. Um, go in and of course, write an addendum to what it is that you're making. And I would never say like, when you document, you don't have to say, I made a mistake. Like, I would document, you know, um, order was not placed. Yeah. You know, followed up with the patient. Um, and then say, patient came in, did the order, period. Like, yeah, no one can tie that was a mistake. Like, if I'm, yeah. you know, and I always try to tell people when I look at charts as an attorney or consulting with other attorneys, I look for wording that's like, Yes, I'm going to read through 500 pages of documents, but I'm really looking for like things that stick out to me. So yeah. if you wrote order was not placed, you know, followed up with the patient, informed them that the order should have been placed. Um, it's two days delayed. Patient came back, returned. This happened. You know, whatever yeah. happened and the outcome, what am I going to say to that, right? Yeah. Like that healthcare, that is what, and I think we assume that healthcare is a perfect situation. Healthcare is extremely imperfect because it's run by people, yeah. right? It's not run by a machine. And so there are going to be outcomes where it's not perfect, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get sued. Yeah. Um, and I also try to explain that the most time when people usually sue, it's not normally just because they had a bad outcome. It's because of how they were treated. Mm -hmm. So if I had a delayed diagnosis, but you treated me so well, you, when we finally got to the point of giving each care and treatment, you made sure that I was, it, everything was expedited, that I got all of the best care and got the best surgeons and the best, like, who am I going to come back and sue? Like, it happens, life happens. People are understanding of that. It's when people are dismissive, disrespectful, yeah. and demeaning to patients yeah. when they come back or they're completely silent about the mistake or the yeah. issue. Yeah. They don't say anything. And it's like, you're, no one expects you to go say, I'm sorry, and to grovel and to ask for forgiveness. Like, we're not asking, you know, patients don't ask for that. Patients usually just ask for some, some type of transparency. Yeah. They want to know that someone knew that it was a mistake, yeah. realized it was a mistake, and self-corrected that okay. they were telling you as a patient how to take care of them. Totally. Right? And so I think that's really the disconnect. And so people healthcare providers feel like people sue too much, but healthcare providers forget that people sue because you disrespected them and made them feel less of a person, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, I've been in situations where people have made mistakes and I've been like, eh, it ain't a big deal. Like it happened. Yeah. Um, and then I've been in situations where people have done things where I'm like, I am going to drag you, you know, <laughs> like, and you have just angered me, yeah. right? And so um, that's when people sue is when you take them to that point where you're not giving them the level of respect that they deserve. Mm -hmm. or that um, and so that's, that's the disconnect. So I think a lot of good providers who have all of this anxiety aren't usually the people who get sued. It's the right. arrogance, the cocky, right. the I'm better than you, yeah. uh, the I make no mistakes, right? Yeah. So surgeons get sued a lot because they have this air of, I don't make mistakes. There is no way that I did this wrong. If this was done wrong, it was because, you know, yeah. and that's why the operating room is a very dangerous place, you know, for egos, emotions, mm -hmm. and outcomes because of those types of attitudes. Yeah. And so I think a lot of family providers feel like they, I'm like, it's not a lot of lawsuits that can go yeah. on in family health because it's just only but so much you can do and there are so many players involved it's never just the provider it's so many other things so many other layers insurance red tape 
you know, social workers trying to get, it's a lot. It's never just usually one person. Um, But in healthcare settings where it's usually the mistake of one person, those are are very rare. And people will come to the hospital and say, I just want to know what happened to my family member. And the hospital will be like, we can't give you any information. And now you have to sue. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to get the chart. The only way you'll be able to figure out what happens. The only way that you'll get some type of closure for someone who either, you know, had some type of long life changing damage done or who passed away. Yeah. And it's like, I just keep coming back to like, and, and this comes up a lot, I think with new nurse practitioners is that, and I had this myself when I was new, it was like, I was so focused on like the medical and the doing And I was still, of course, thinking about the emotional aspects, but I remember as a new grad being like, I don't want to hear about the fluffy stuff. I just want to be able to learn and how to do my job. But it's like, this is so inherent. Like, it's just wild that like emotional connection, closure, validation, all of that stuff, like (laughs) that is like integral, you know, it's like the outcomes are important too, but like those are the foundations, you know? Um, Yeah. In the, in the, as of this recording, the last week's video, um, I talked about trauma-informed care where it's basically like, I don't know, some people I feel like could write it off as this touchy feely thing, but it's like, honestly, this is the foundations. Like if you're sensitive to people's like needs and rapport and relationship, like, yeah. (laughs) That is it. And I think, you know, we would put a lot of lawyers out of business if we tapped into that more. Yeah. Um, I think there is this conversation that's happening now in birth, you know, in, in like the birth world where they're starting to understand trauma-informed care yeah. because they have the some the hardest outcomes. Like it, you do have to have a happy ending for people to feel good about it. Yeah. Um, but there's so much trauma that goes on in the care from, you know, conception all the way to birth that people bring to the table that then if the outcome isn't perfect, that becomes someone's fault, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if that isn't treated in the beginning or dealt with in the beginning, that negative outcome is then related to all of the trauma that has happened to that patient. Totally. totally. I think if healthcare providers can understand that people bring to you whatever experiences that they have had with providers. When I go to the dentist, I'm always like, I have had terrible experiences with the dentist. And they're just like, but not with us. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like take good care of me, be gentle. Right. Um, And the, and the dentist has to take that into consideration and be gentle with you. Right. Right. And so it's like, if we put that into like a healthcare setting and say, people who come to see you could have experienced so many different types of trauma, whether it be healthcare related or personal, we have to take that into consideration. We do have to take a second and, and step back and say, how are you? Yeah. You know, and, and yes, sometimes people will go on and on, but you have to be, you know, bold enough to say, you know what, I'm so glad to hear that you're doing well, but let's get to your, your, your visit and why yeah. you're here I don't want to waste your time. I know right. you're good. Right. right. So like being able to, you know, give that relationship building aspect of your care definitely leads to people feeling like, oh, I love my provider. They're the best in the world. And when you make the mistake, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. I know yeah. you didn't mean to. Like, yeah. you know, and that happens where you make the mistake and people are just like, oh, it wasn't intentional. I knew you were busy. Mm-hmm. Because you took that second to really see who they are as a person yeah. and not just who they are as a patient. Yeah. And I think that like so many new grads and I work with some mentees one-on-one and like they all have that experience of like their patients love them because they give them the time, they give them their heart, like all that stuff. So 
Uh, so yeah, because I think so many other new NPs in, in this context specifically beat themselves up about not knowing all the things and they worry about all the missing things and, and documenting things wrong. And, you know, there's always things to worry about, right? But if we have the foundations of relationship, then we definitely like have a, a strong hold to, to put on. Um, I want to, I want to, we have so many questions. We don't have to address all of them, but I want to, I want to address some of the other ones. So um, what, uh, what about, uh, so I'm going to pause here and we can edit this out. Uh, what do you, what do you want to, where, how are we doing with time for you? And um, where oh, do you think you want to? I'm over with time. Um, I think we, should, we can go into like the medical malpractice insurance and personal legal representation. Cool. Uh, I think those two things we kind of touched on a couple of other things. Yeah, I think we did. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So back to recording. Um, so with medical malpractice insurance, this question comes up like all the time. Uh, and I'm sure you get this question a million times a day too, of like malpractice insurance. When do you need it? Like, do I need it because of my employer? Like what are the flavors of that kind of conversation of separate medical malpractice insurance or medical malpractice insurance in general? So this is such a common topic that I don't understand how nurse practitioner, you know, schools and programs and nursing programs aren't having this conversation at the week before graduation or the month before graduation. Yeah. Right? Like it's a huge issue and mm -hmm. the deal. And if you don't know anything about it, you would just like, oh, I'm just going to get it just in case. So if you work for a healthcare organization that provides medical malpractice insurance, and that's all you do, your full-time job is with this organization that is insured and covered, then you're fine. You don't need anything extra. Yeah. And the reason is that if you have it and someone sues either your organization or decides to try to sue you and they find out, you have to disclose it, that you have it they're going to keep you in the case instead of kicking you out because that's more money to them, right? <laughs> so their healthcare organization has whatever millions of dollar policy. And yeah. if you have a $1 million policy, that's one more million that that client could potentially get. Oh my God, this is blowing my mind. <laughs> so you don't, and the way that hospitals negotiate to get people's names off of cases is by saying they don't have anything to lose. like they don't have anything to offer if you take this from them you know they don't have any insurance we're going to pay you whatever it is that you want to get but if, if you take our providers off if you take our nurses off if you take our radiologists off then we can get to the conversation which is basically the money like settling with with settling, a exactly. either settling or even if they go to court the negotiation doesn't they don't go anywhere unless they say like take these people's names off, right? I and so know. nurses in the hospital who have, who document defensively, and I have this conversation with a couple of different nursing groups sometimes, it's like, don't, like you don't have a reason to. The legal team is gonna get you out. One, they don't want you on, on in a seat answering questions because they know, you know how bad it is, <laughs> right? So they don't want a nurse involved at all because your interest is self and is yeah. not protecting the organization. The doctor, if they have to keep the doctor, the doctor is gonna defend themselves and they're also gonna defend the hospital because that's who pays them. Mm. So that's protect them. And it's a lot harder to get a job as a doctor than it is as a nurse. Whereas mm -hmm. a nurse will be like, oh, I'm about to throw everybody under the bus and I'll just go get another job, right? Like, and so they do not want nurses <laughs> on these cases at all. They don't want them deposed. 
They don't want them testifying. They don't want them near an attorney because so much more could happen. Whereas the patient or the client can be coming for one issue and the nurse is like, and then they forgot to draw labs. And then, and I, you know, that's just how nurses are. Nurses are, I just understand why nurses are like this. Like, I don't know. They're so intense when it comes to like documentation and like protecting themselves. And I'm like, trust me, honey, the attorney at the hospital does not want you on their team. Like, they don't see you as an ally at all, right? So oh God. don't, if you're a nurse practitioner, you don't want to have that extra coverage. If you're doing something outside of that, if you're doing per diem work for a company, mm-hmm. um, if you have your own business, if mm-hmm. you're doing like Suboxone treatments in a, a separate mm-hmm. clinic or flu clinic, mm-hmm. things like that, that may not be fully insured. Yes, you should have some type of coverage. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go have million dollar coverage. I would maybe have like, $100,000 or maybe half a million dollars if you're doing some very intensive work. But if you're doing like a flu clinic, you don't need million dollar coverage, right? That's you just nice need something small just in case, you know, something happens, someone has a, a, a negative outcome and they just may, you know, bring something to the table because malpractice insurance just isn't about the money. They also provide other resources to you um, under your coverage. So it's just like home insurance. So home insurance isn't just about like, covering just the outside of the house. They may cover different aspects of your home or if you have a fire, they may pick you up in a hotel, like those different tenants of it. Um, and so in medical malpractice insurance, they provide other things coverage as well. So like if they provide malpractice insurance, sometimes like if you work in a, a suboxone clinic, if there's a flood and everything is damaged and you can't work, they may give you money to help cover that or repair the cost of those things. So there are little things that they cover outside of just someone coming to see you or try to bring it to you. Um, they do provide resources to risk managers. So like if you um, are working with a medical malpractice insurance, they'll give you a number to call if you're running into an issue to be able to ask questions because you don't have a risk manager that works for you. So they'll give you resources and access to those people so that you can ask those questions as you may be having an issue when you're out in the field, if that makes sense. I understand. I understand. Yeah. So that's really the only time you need it. And then when you talk about having an attorney at your side, as a new nurse practitioner, I think a lot of people, you know, see a contract. Hopefully you read every word of the contract. Uh, Some people don't have contracts, actually. I've, I, it's, yeah, this is like I have little Wild West. Like, I feel like I learned about contracts. Like, I was interviewed for a job and they gave me a contract and I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know there was a contract to sign. I read through it. It seems fine. You know, but some people don't even have contracts. So any, any thought, I love, welcome all of the thoughts. <laughs> yeah. So I think as, if you're in a situation where you are going to be uh, held responsible for a certain amount of patients, um, for a certain like outcomes for either income, like some providers have to bring in a certain amount, see a certain amount of patients and reach a certain amount of like money. Like, I, you know, mm. you have to see this amount of patients and then bring in this amount of money by doing yeah. X, Y, and Z, if you have those type of responsibilities, you need to have a contract uh, because you want someone to say like, mm-hmm. what happens if that doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are no protections for you. There's no, mm-hmm. what, you know, if Andrew, but there's no um, really detailed explanation. And I think that's what happens with a lot of providers. They'll go into a situation and be like, oh, I didn't know that I had to see that many patients or I didn't know that I had to commit to that many hours of following up on my referrals. There are like other aspects of the job that isn't just seeing patient care. There may be mm. other responsibilities that you have 
if it's teaching, if it's, you know, precepting, whatever the case may be, you would like those things to be detailed out. You also would like to know when you're going to get a raise. How, how is this yeah. structured? Because yeah. if you don't have a contract, they don't have to give you a raise. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like if you work for me and I say you come and make in $150,000, when do you get a raise? When do you get a performance evaluation? Yeah. When we look at, you know, your load and see if we need to provide more um, office hours for you to be able to do different types of work or to mm-hmm. switch your time between telemedicine and in person. Like, when do we discuss that? Yeah. Do you, you as a new practitioner are going to come to me and say, hey, I've been working here for two years. I think I need a raise. I'm going to look at you like you're crazy, right? And so, like, of course, I think any new provider is not going to say, I need a contract. Um, but I think as a provider, if someone's not offering a contract, then you should be asking some detailed questions of like, mm. when, are, when would my performance evaluation occur? You know, mm. how do raises work? How um, mm. are payment structure? Like, I know a recently an organization I worked for, it was like everyone was paid, you know, across the board a salary. And now it's tied to how many patients you see. Mm. Right. And then it was tied to like your patient outcomes, like your the numbers, the yeah. like quality measures. Like, yeah, your quality measures. Like that you want that detail because if it's not, then they can automatically and it could be arbitrary on like, oh, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And so no, you right. know that job. Right. But you have nothing to bring to an attorney to say, Hey, I lost my job. Um, this was our contract, like what should I do? If you don't have a contract, no attorney's gonna talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. So quality measures being things like number percentage of patients with diabetes, A1C less than 9% and colon cancer screening maybe. And depends, I think what the measures are that they're looking for, like what percentage of those metrics, generally speaking. So if you, if, if your pay is tied to those metrics, you want yeah. that to be documented, to protect yourself um, in yeah. case of someone who tries to say that you're not doing what it is that you're doing, um, you can say, well, this was a contract that I had and this is what we agreed to. Yeah. Um, and it also, things change. Like people will get you into a job and tell you that you'll be doing one thing and then you get there and all of a sudden you're doing another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you don't have anything to protect you or yeah. to say like, this is what we originally agreed to, yeah, you're stuck doing whatever it is that they tell you to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a couple of people had asked about hiring a contract lawyer and they found it to be a little cost prohibitive. Um, so like, I don't know, I, I don't, it depends. I think the rates are different. And what is, what is your perspective? Like, do you think that that should be requisite? Cause I feel like I, I didn't, I had no idea what a contract lawyer was. I had no idea. I was so, I was clueless when I had a brand new job as an NP. So I think one of the things I think is, is hard and why I try to have more conversations about healthcare and the legal world and where that, why that connects is it, it's very secretive and a mystery unless you are an attorney and you know attorneys or you have attorneys in your family you really don't know what goes on you don't know what, what is a good rate or what is a not so good rate if it's inflated yeah. you don't know what you're going to get for 750 dollars if that's what someone's asking right, right? right so some attorneys are charging 350 dollars an hour up to a thousand dollars an hour depending on like how big of a law firm that they work for so no a nurse practitioner should not necessarily go and work for a go find an attorney at a law firm because they're gonna bill you and it's gonna be something that you just can't afford and it's very discouraging um and then there are a lot of solo practitioners or provide like attorneys who have their own practices who just don't advertise well enough so you just don't know where to look or where to start up mm-hmm. with trust you know we've had a conversation about 
working with attorneys who just don't understand, you yeah. know, what it is that you do. Yeah. Um, and so we, as attorneys, come, sometimes struggle with trying to find other resources of other attorneys. There are so many attorneys in this country, but yet mm. when you're looking for something very specific, all of a sudden you can't find anyone. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like, yes, like a lot of people use things like Google Zoom and like these different um, apps and websites to create contracts or to um, use their services and not to say they're not bad but sometimes they don't have your best interest in mind. Yeah. Right? And so they don't understand healthcare. They're just a lawyer who's contracted to work with Google Zoom and they're just going to do whatever they feel is okay. And they don't mm-hmm. have any health or legal experience. So yeah. there are, like, if you're in a, a position where you need an attorney, you don't have resources, um, you can reach out to, like, law schools, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, a lot of law schools have clinics and that is like right up their alley. Like if you call a law school and the, and the students are in, cl- are in clinic, usually during the school year, sometimes in the summer and say, hey, um, is there anyone available to review my contract? So it would be maybe a student reviewing your contract mm. right, you know, who's probably going to be more detailed than a regular attorney because they don't have anything else to do. Yeah. But they're supervised by a licensed attorney. So That's it's not awesome. necessarily outside of, you know, like it's not just a student doing the work for you. It's yeah. actually two attorneys or a future attorney and an actual licensed attorney doing that work. That sounds great. But that's a good place to start if you're in a position um, is, or if they can refer you. They, it, like a lot of times, like I went to Howard Law, which is in DC. If it was something that we couldn't do, they would make it their business to connect you with a lawyer who mm. could help. Um, and get you the resources that you need. So that's a good place to start is to find a law school in your area, in your city, or in your state to find some resources to help you. Even though people aren't in the office, they're still connected via email, um, even sometimes via phone um, to make sure that people are getting what it is, you know, what they need. Um, and there also are like legal aid offices. Like you may not feel like you qualify for legal aid, but you also don't want to pay somebody a thousand dollars an hour to get a contract that may take them five hours to them, right? Like that's not acceptable. But legal aid is a great resource, right? So legal aid, yes, are for people who cannot afford a lawyer. But if you call them and say, hey, I'm looking for a lawyer who does X, Y, and Z, they have a list of lawyers Mm -hmm. who either does inexpensive work or who does pro bono work. But a lot of times those lawyers who sign up to do pro bono work is what they do voluntarily but they also work as regular lawyers so yeah. those are usually the ones who have lower rates yeah uh, and you can have access to to provide you whatever resources that you need totally. so don't, i would say yes if you can read your own contract you can take the risk to do it but there are times like i've read a contract for nurse practitioners specifically and i'm like mm, what happens when that like what would you do if that happened right like like they didn't mention anything about pay or they didn't mention anything about that. Like, let's talk about the structure um, or the requirements are so high. I'm like, you really didn't see a hundred patients in a month? Like, is that like, how's that going to work? That volume, you know, what does that look like? What support do you have? You know, those kind of things. And so going, and then they're able to go back to the table and say, what support do I have? How am I supposed to get that done? How many hours am I supposed to commit to that? If I, you know, or you know, people are now giving unlimited PTO. That may, may be a little bit rare in healthcare, but in certain situations, if you're giving unlimited PTO, how do I request that? Do I get paid? You know, like there are just other questions that you have to ask that you wouldn't totally. think about as a normal person because you're so excited yeah. about the opportunity. And that excitement kind of sometimes put a, puts a block in front of you. 
Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't allow you to necessarily uh, ask the appropriate questions. Totally, totally. Um, so a couple other things we wanted to, to cover. Um, scope of practice. Do you want to talk about scope of practice? Yeah, I think oh. nurse practitioners, you know, are just to me the best care providers. Oh, <laughs> I love them. So nice. I love them. No, they are just so detailed and so good. And, you know, they just have a heart. Because <laughs> some providers are just like, you don't, have a heart. You don't care about me. Um, and I think, of course, it's state based. It depends what your state allows. Like, I am a Maryland bar attorney. So, Maryland is a full practice state where nurse practitioners can work independently. So they have the autonomy to do a lot of different things, whereas certain states have not passed those rules. So mm. you have to look at the scope that is laid out by the Board of Nursing or whoever governs you in your state as mm. to what it is that you can do. If you're in a situation where providers asking you to do something that you feel like may be out of your scope, if you work in a setting where you have a risk manager or compliance officer, or an attorney on the team, you should reach out to them because they're the ones who are gonna who write the policies and they're gonna say, oh no, that's not okay. I'll talk to them. I'll make sure you're protected. Yeah. If you're in a situation where you don't have that, mm. you can always call the board and ask or email the board and say like, you know, is this within my scope? Can I do that? Mm. Um, and they're not gonna penalize you for asking questions. Even yeah. if you are good at no one's gonna say yeah. like, you know, you didn't know. And that's yeah. why you're asking the question. Yeah. Um, and so making sure that you're comfortable with your scope, I think, is what it really some of the challenges I feel like nurse practitioners have is like, this is all you can do. Make sure you're comfortable in those things. Right. So like yeah. if they're asking you to do, we didn't really talk about specifically, but FMLA paperwork, mm. that is your scope. Right. Mm. How do you do that effectively and efficiently is not up to someone to explain to you. That's up to you as a provider to learn. The, the best tips, the tools, how to, you know, how to protect yourself, how to make sure that everything that is true is documented and what is not true that the patient may be asking you to write down um, is not documented, like those kind of things. So there is also some responsibility on the nurse practitioner to get educated, to find the resources mm -hmm. that they need to, that's what seeing credits are for, um, mm -hmm. you know, when they're, you know, you're going to sign a contract and hopefully they're giving you thousands of dollars to use OCE credits, use them for things that you know that you're struggling with, but those areas where you have lots of questions, use that money to dig deeper because there are so many resources out there. Yeah. And I say to be careful, like I think social media is an amazing tool, um, but in the recent weeks, I'm realizing that people are taking that as like the information that is shared on social media as gold, um, you know, and it's not. <laughs> right. I mean, there. my stuff is gold. <laughs> of course, but it's not just social media. You're actually providing curriculum that yes, is well-rounded yeah. and nuanced and yeah. information that provides people an opportunity to ask more questions. Yeah. Right. But yeah. there are some resources that are out there that is just spewing information that is not necessarily nuanced and it's not allowing people to ask questions. So I feel like more people are asking about medical malpractice insurance because people are saying you need medical malpractice insurance. Yeah. Some, they're hearing that from somewhere. I never thought about having medical malpractice insurance as a, under, like 12 years ago. Yeah. Why would I? I yeah. work for an organization, right? Totally. Um, and so it's like someone is saying that somewhere. That information yeah. is being spewed somewhere saying that you need to protect yourself. You need this. You need why, right? And, so there's no, and then there's no opportunity to ask the question why, which then leads people to make decisions that may not be appropriate for them. 
Yeah, no, totally. And I think like the question kind of with scope, I I think was, there were a couple of example questions. We weren't trying to do like too specific stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, kind of like if you have a family nurse practitioner and you're working in a psych setting, like a, a psychiatric mental illness, mental wellness health setting, like versus, you know, if you're, I don't know, there's just, there's so many, there's so many like branches off of examples, but I think you're like, it really just sounds like it comes down from to state to state and the board of nursing and, and yeah, hopefully. The, yeah. It comes out to the support. So for providers ask you to do something independently, and never checking back up and never giving you the training that you need and you don't have anybody to partner with to make these types of very crucial decisions that you don't feel like you're trained on, scope or no scope, like don't do it, right? Like that's not appropriate. But if they're giving you extensive amount of training, like they are giving you access to someone who has extensive, you know, experience working with that patient population, then, and you're doing the care as a partner practitioner that's within your scope I don't think that's wrong right like I think Mm. that you have the resources that you need to ask questions when you run into a situation Mm. that you're not comfortable with that you received extensive amounts of training um, that you should you know make you more comfortable with the patient population that you'll be taking care of like that's okay as long as that's within your state within your scope that may be a new environment yeah right like but that doesn't necessarily mean it's without outside of your scope so that's like a nurse practitioner who's done med surge and now they're being put in a critical care unit mm-hmm. but all of a sudden you know you've gotten three months of training and you have a provider who can answer every single one of your questions right. or who yeah. like that's okay like it's yeah. not easy it may be tough we've seen it happen in the hospitals people being thrown all over the place we get it is not ideal. Yeah. But if you have the resources and the support, then it doesn't mean that it's outside of your scope. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think what is, what is one more question we can tackle? Um, what do you, what, what do you think? Grab bag. Um, yeah. So I think there are a couple like things we wanted to highlight. I think we said we were talking about at the beginning, but we forgot. Um, someone asked something about like estate planning and protecting your assets. Oh, yes. Yeah. You, we're in a situation where someone attempted to sue you, like, how do you do that? You have to talk to a state planning lawyer. I do not do estate planning at mm-hmm. all. Um, there are some amazing resources out there. Um, the just-in-case lawyer is someone who I follow who does estate planning. She's in Texas, though, but... Um, is she, she right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. I know. I, I think she, I think I was going to ask that if it was state-based. I think she, I think yeah. you would say something. It's definitely state-based, but she would at least be able to, put, to uh, point you in the right resources, to the right yeah. resources. Totally. Um, because she's an estate planning lawyer and they have their own communities uh, and things like that. So yes, there are some things I think that you should do, but that's very specific and you have to meet with an estate planning lawyer to figure mm. out what has and what should be protected um, and what's mm. not, you know, what can be left out or what can be left put in, right? So mm. that's a very specific question, but I think meeting with an estate planning lawyer is, is crucial in that point. Um, and usually estate planning lawyers aren't as expensive as people think. Yeah. Um, I think we assume all attorneys are really expensive, but estate mm-hmm. planning lawyers, you know, they, the value of estate planning is so valuable and that when you treat people well, they're going to continue to come back. So estate planning lawyers usually don't, you know, charge crazy amounts of money because you have to come back and update your paperwork. Like yeah. every year, every few years, you may have more kids or you mm-hmm. may have bought a house. So like mm-hmm. if someone's paying, you know, $30,000 for an estate plan, they're never going to come back to yeah. update. 
Yeah. And that doesn't help the estate planning lawyer. So I feel like don't ever assume that someone's more expensive than they may be. Right, right. Um, right. Just because it may be something that you're not familiar with. And you can always shop around and say, you know, what are your rates? And then yeah. you can always compare to them to other people as well. Totally. It's just, it is such a valuable thing that it's like, it's like a grown up thing that I've been putting off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a bad lawyer and I'm also bad. So <laughs> I move so much. So I'm like, I don't want to do an estate here. I need to move on it. And then I'd be yeah. like, I've been in New York for three years. I should have had an estate. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's so valuable. Yeah. It's like, so it's so important. It's like hard to see sometimes that there's like the work and the effort and the money and like how much it pays off eventually. But um, you were there. Did we, did you want to touch on um, kind of like the FMLA pre-op COVID work letter question? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in more detail when you're talking about, it's a little bit of documentation in FMLA paperwork pre-op clearances. So I think with FMLA paperwork, you just have to be very specific and honest about the symptoms that the patient is having. Um, where I used to work, people would just be so, like so vague. And then the patient would have to come back and come back and come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel it was corrected. What the uh, job or, you know, the employer is looking for is like, can they come back to work? Like, so if you're saying you know, patient is having difficulty walking, that does not mean anything to the employer because they may be at a job that they're seated. So, okay, you may have to take you a while to walk in here, but if you can get in here and get to a chair, you can work, right? So yeah. you need to be detailed and speak enough to if that patient can sit in a chair for eight hours, yeah. you know, the patient, what type of work environment that they work in and what it is that they do and what, it, what their job is asking them to do yeah. Like if they're on light duty, some people can go back to work on light duty. That makes sense. But for some people, that's not even an option. Yeah. You know? And so when it's not an option, you have to speak specifically to what that person can do. They cannot w- walk more than 500 feet without having severe pain, mm. right? But it should be that specific. Mm. They cannot sit in a chair for more than two hours without, you know, having crippling pain. Mm-hmm. So they may need to be at home in a bed, lay down yeah. in their house because there it just doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be able to speak specifically to what it is that their job description is and what is their job is asking them to do, and then you know whatever symptoms or issues that they may be having medically and how that's impossible for them to mm-hmm. you know be able to manage their health mm-hmm. while at work. Totally, because that's what the job the no the job doesn't want to be responsible at work for someone who you know, comes in and has a stroke or a heart attack because they can't manage their care. Uh, but they also want to know, like, they also don't want to put someone out who may not need to be put out of work, right? Um, because that cost is costly for them. Um, so I think those specifics, I think, would be more helpful um, mm-hmm. on FMLA. And pre-op clearances, um, <laughs> I see crazy things with those too, but the surgeon wants to know that they're not going to get in trouble for yes. taking care of a patient who yeah. is not really medically ready. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it is important that we're doing the hemoglobin A1Cs and the blood sugars and mm-hmm. um, whatever other pre-testing that needs to be done, the EKGs mm-hmm. and all of those things and ensuring that they're accurate and correct mm-hmm. or done in a timely manner so that the surgeon's not put at risk. Because really? I think what people don't understand about a pre-op clearance, it really gives a surgeon an idea and the anesthesiologist an idea of what protections they need to put in place to protect themselves to make sure yeah. that the patient doesn't die on the table and now they're being sued. Right. right? It feels like if we have to think of these documents as a team effort, it's mm-hmm. not just you protecting yourself, it's not you just protecting the patient, 
you're also protecting the next provider when it comes to the pre-op clearance. Mm-hmm. So it does need to be detailed. All the sections should be filled out. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't just see, you know, sometimes you can say see, you know, attachments or things like that when it's too wordy, but mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you're referring them back to something that you're yeah. not just being yeah. blank. Um, and, and then, you know, asking them to assume that that hasn't been done. Yeah. I think like the understanding that I've pulled and correct me if I'm wrong, I think like, I think there's like kind of the two things. One is like making sure that it's documenting their kind of current clinical status appropriately, um, doing the testing that they've requested. And then, um, which is like actually kind of a side conversation. There's like, a, I think Curbsiders has a podcast about like the evidence around how much document, how much testing we actually need to do versus like what makes us feel better, <laughs> whatever. I just kind of go based on their, what they need from me. And then the other thing is like, is like, um, you can say like no contraindications for surgery, but like not to say clearance. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you have any thoughts about the verbiage to say like, you know, cause if you say clearance, then that you're more on the hook or something. I don't know. This may be totally false. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I don't think I wouldn't say no contraindications because there may be a contraindication <laughs> of why they may not need the surgery, but it may, the, you know, benefit analysis may be that it's more important that they get the surgery, even though maybe a risk that they may die. Right. So I wouldn't say no contraindications because a lot of times patients do have contraindications of why they shouldn't go to surgery. Right. Um, but it's more like a risks benefit discussion. It sounds like yeah, just documenting that. that is really up to the, the surgeon to have. Um, so I definitely wouldn't write no contraindications. And I don't think clearance or anything, you know, that, that those specifics make you more on the hook or not. All you're doing, like, I think the pre-op clearance really is what the provider is at, like what the surgeon is asking for, yeah. the surgeon he may be asking for. It's not asking you to say like, this patient is not going to die if they get to the surgery. <laughs> like that's not their expectation. Right. The expectation is that you just do whatever it is that we ask you to do to make sure that we're protected and right. we have a good idea. And I think sometimes people underestimate the power of those documents because the anesthesiologist really yeah. is the person who yeah. takes consideration some of that information for themselves and how they're going to manage the patient yeah. so you don't put that the patient has sleep apnea yeah yeah oh yes that they <laughs> are not on their machine and they're not taking it seriously and they're not you know right. that's huge, it's important. Really it's important very important yeah. for an, an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist totally. to um take into consideration when they're putting someone to sleep right yeah, so totally. um like that's what it really is. It's like making sure you're putting enough information for the next provider to be able to protect yourself. Totally. And then I think like the clinical, cause I can hear the questions of like the clinical questions, like your decision, like there's, that is a separate topic. I think for NPs to dig into is like having the conversations about the risk benefits and deciding if it's appropriate. Like that's a separate conversation. We're mostly talking about like, once you've had that conversation, what you're documenting yeah. and all that stuff. But I don't think it's really up to even the primary provider to decide if it's appropriate. It's up to the surgeon. Yeah, because it's both. Surgeon- yes are risky and yes. then like yeah you've had five open heart surgeries and you have all these stents but and you have a high risk of getting a blood clot right but if we don't fix your aneurysm you're going to die tomorrow yeah. right yeah. And it, you as a provider may say Ooh, this patient may not be wow. ready to right. be cleared but the surgeon may say you know it may have reasons as to why they want to move forward right. Um, right so yes like i yeah definitely both but it's like i don't think that you guys should take on so much yeah. you're right you're because right the risk that comes out of it, I feel like there's very rarely been instances where the pre-op clearance is why someone gets sued. Yeah. Like, they never really go back to that. Like even the surgery that yeah. 
if yeah, the surgeries that I've seen have been really big payouts or really big cases. Um, it never really boils down to the pre-op or to the primary provider. Yeah. It, is what the surgical team did or didn't do mm. and never what they took into consideration is usually has to do with the outcome so was the surgeon mm. actually capable mm. of you know well trained or had the resources or whatever to do the surgery that they did and mm. was the outcome a part of the risk that were explained to the patient right 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 that's right, right. And so i think that that is usually what happens when what i've seen the ugliest cases it's usually like the surgeon did something egregious pre-op cleared or not (laughs) it was not the primary care providers you know problem and I think like it's hard to to go far that far back for an attorney like yeah I think people think that people are looking for people to sue no I know so many attorneys who will turn down a case in a second like they're like I'm not doing that like it's too like because it's costly to try to go after and find out the right information to review Mm. the expensive for the attorney because you don't get paid unless they get paid. So unless it's a straight shot, it's very rare that an attorney's going to invest the time and the money to go after a primary provider in a situation with a surgeon who has more coverage, who yeah. has more practice insurance, right. who's covered by a hospital. Right, right. We're not right. the primary care provider, right? So okay. I think when you think about it like that, not to say you should completely relax about it, yeah. but I think you should take into consideration that like people aren't going to backtrack that yeah. far and try to put some type of blame on you because then it's going to be like, okay, I said that they were cleared. That had yeah. this outcome. It doesn't really work like that. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it rarely ever works. It goes that far back. Totally. Um, well, should we wrap up? Yeah. Oh, the, I think someone was asking a little bit about fraud. Um, oh, yes. If people want to talk about like fraud, I do some things on Instagram talking about fraud. Yes. The Office of the Inspector General puts out a report every day pretty much but you can go to the office of the inspector general which is the feds basically and look at the cases that they're going like the people who they're either indicting or sending to jail or uh, i'm like so nosy that's like a series they're so good and so funny people are i've seen some of your posts (laughs) we were like girl how did you think you were going to get a kickback oh come on a hot mess so <laughs> and fun like so but it, literally it's the same thing happening over and over like people are doing crazy things and like someone is now looking for the money and trying to account for that and now all of a sudden their whole plan is exposed so if you have questions about fraud that's a good place to start because the feds are way more aggressive than the states when it comes to fraud um, mm. but the feds are aggressive. So yeah, even they do not play. They don't play. If it's a, if they were you a hundred charts and two charts show that they overbuild, they're going to take the, that, whatever that percentage is and times it times all of your patients. Oh my. The past year and you're oh going to pay them that money back. Oh my. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. this applies to me too. Oh, definitely. Applies. <laughs> definitely applies. About over billing is like, we can have a whole conversation about oh, billing. Yes. All that. that uh, Usually in the hospitals, that's what really happens. Um, mm-hmm. and in this conversation, we talked a little bit about um, decreasing liability and mitigating risk. Um, but I'm working on something to really educate people on how to do that. Because I think that is a 
it's what you what we're kind of talking about today and people want to know like how can i prevent this from happening Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that most people are doing the right thing i think most providers are doing the right thing um you know i think in six years maybe six thousand nurses and nurse practitioners have lost their license like and there are thousands and thousands, you know, so it's like, and usually the reason why people lose their license, it's because they did something really egregious, like killing somebody, or, you know, drunk driving, like, it's, it's never usually like, I forgot to document, <laughs> it is never that small, it is usually like a pattern mm-hmm. of bad behavior yeah um, or people thinking that they're getting away with something and they're not so mm-hmm. I do hope that this conversation gives people an ability to relax a little bit and be yeah. the provider that you dreamed of yeah, I yeah. Think, like, if you get back to that like I when I became this person I wanted to be this person be that person yeah and then all of the other issues and the things that you have and the skills that you're learning as a new nurse practitioner or even as an experienced nurse practitioner because things change every single day and you're yeah. always learning something new will come with time and you'll become better at it and more proficient at it and if you take the pressure off of yourself i think you can be really become a better provider because you can see people for who they are and not just the disease that they have totally totally thank you so much for being here i, I this is just so wonderful um do you want to tell people where um, where they can find you? And yes. yeah, um, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest. Don't go Pinterest because I'm a little messed <laughs> But I'm your nurse lawyer <laughs> on everywhere. Awesome. You can reach out to me on Instagram if you have any other questions following up with this. If you listen to the podcast, um, I can of course always send people resources and things like other referrals. Um, I help people find other attorneys specifically, mm-hmm. so you can reach out to me and I definitely will get back to you. And then on my Instagram page, all my contact information is there. But yes, I'm your nurse lawyer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I hope to really build a better healthcare system for healthcare providers where they have a little bit more information and they know about these legal aspects so that they can be more comfortable with doing what it is that they do best. Totally. I'm so, so excited for everything you have coming up and all of that education coming. Um, I can't wait. So thank you so much again. I so appreciate it. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the Ultimate Resource Guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.